Thank you, Cynthia. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 17. We'll be continuing our sermon series in Acts here this morning. A sermon series that actually will be pausing as our summer sermon series starts in two weeks. Next week is Father's Day and Pastor Andrew will bring a message for us from that. And Acts will conclude sometime in 2018. I'm just not sure when yet because I haven't planned that far ahead. There we go. Thank you, Jelaine. We started the book of Acts in 2016. We picked it up in the winter here of 2017. And the whole overarching idea behind that book of Acts is how can we learn from the early church how we can be better witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this ever-changing world that we live in as they lived in an ever-changing world. An ever-changing world that we live in in 2017. Some of you know Bernie Sanders. He was on a Senate committee this past week reviewing one of President Trump's nominee, a deputy director of White House Office of Management and Budget. This appointee for President Trump was a Christian. Senator Sanders deemed this candidate void, vogue I should say, unsuitable for office because he believes that salvation is found alone through Jesus Christ. Mr. Sanders goes on and says, He said someone with that kind of religious belief system is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. That's the United States, but the same sort of thought is thought about in Canada as well. Those Christians, they're just too bigoted. They're not tolerant. And it's that world that we live in that as a church, as believers, we're still called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ to and in. So I hope so far in the book of Acts we have gained some insight in how we can reach our anti-Christian world that we've learned from how the early church, specifically now the Apostle Paul, has reached, reached that changing world that he was in. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches truth, but also teaches us how to put that truth into practice. And how to be better effective witnesses for your gospel, for your son, because it's only through your son that people are truly saved. So teach us how to be better witnesses this morning through your word. Allow your spirit to penetrate not just our heads, but our hearts, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember the last couple of times in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has been on a second missionary journey. A couple of weeks ago, he was in Thessalonica. He preached the gospel there, stirred up the a crowd. The crowd went anti-Christian, so to speak. Paul and Silas got thrown in jail. God miraculously broke them free from jail. Through that, the jailer and his family came to faith. 
But Paul got, had to leave and he went on to Berea, which we looked at last week. The same thing happened to Berea. He preached the gospel. Some people believed. The town got stirred up because of Paul's preaching. He got quickly and swiftly taken out of town to where we find in Acts 17, verse 16. Today he's in Athens. June 11, 2017, we're at the very crust of summer. And many of us are planning our summer holidays, our summer vacations. Those intentional times that we take away to rest, to relax, to break away from what we usually do in the routines that are associated with what we usually do. And how many of our vacations, in either the summer or perhaps other times of the year, involve sightseeing of sorts, that we go to places that have sights to see and we go and we look at the sights and, and see their beauty or see their historical factor behind them. And in our passage today, we find Paul kind of a forced vacation. As he's alone in Athens, Greece, as he got quickly taken out of Berea and put there, left behind Timothy and, and Silas in Berea, and was waiting for his companions to arrive in Athens, and Athens, by the first century BC, or by the first century, where Paul is right now in time, had been conquered by the Roman Empire. But Athens, much like it is today, was a place of sights. It was a place of great historical significance and great culture and things like that because of its rich culture, rich heritage, the writers that came from forth from her, the works that they produce, and perhaps the most famous thing that Athens was known for even today, but more so in Paul's day, was the great philosophers and their philosophies that came forth from that city. Philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, wrote their great works in that city. And Athens was also a religious center. A religious center because almost every god that that world worshipped at that time, in one way or another, was worshipped in that city. To the point that a contemporary of Paul of that day, a Roman writer, said this of Athens, that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario. I grew up about six blocks away from Tim Hortons store number one. And by the time I left the old military in the mid-80s and when I lived back there in the early 90s, there was literally a Tim Hortons on every corner in Hamilton, it felt like. To the point that you could find Tim Hortons a lot quicker than you could find a police station, which was good because if you went inside the Tim Hortons, usually there was a police officer. But this is the way Athens was. As on every corner there was a shrine, there was an altar, there was a temple worshipping some sort of God. Which made really Athens, much like it is today, a place of sights. A place to go sightseeing if Paul so desired. But we read that Paul, as he's waited his friends to arrive, didn't take a holiday from the main business that was his life and his calling, which was to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since Paul waited, he observed what was going on in Athens. And his spirit was troubled. Since this whole city was entirely committed to the worship of false idols. It grieved his heart, provoked his spirit, as verse 16 says, and that forced him into action. 
Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Forced him into action means for Paul, he did what we've seen him do so often. He goes to the synagogue to go talking to the Jews that would be found there, but also the God-fearing Gentiles that would be wanting to know the living and true God. But to point out how depraved Athens was, we see Paul do something here that he hasn't done anywhere else. That he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, but the other six days of the week, he goes into the marketplace to reason with these people of Athens about the gospel. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. From Paul's response that we see how his heart was grieved in Athens, how his spirit was troubled, Does that resonate with our hearts? With our spirits living in the land that we live in now? That's so devoted to idol worship of many kinds? Be it either on vacation or in everyday life? Has our spirits provoked us into action, into promptness, to go reason with people for the sake of the gospel because those people are lost? Lost apart from this one and only gospel of Jesus Christ that we see Paul has been preaching on his missionary journey and that we as Christ's followers are being told that we are witnesses to as well. It's in this marketplace that Paul begins to interact with the two major philosophical groups that controlled Athens at this time, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Verse 18 some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what, what does this babbler wish to say? Others say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See, the Stoics, this in a nutshell, were materialistic sort of thinking thinkers and believed in gathering a lot of things and that's what made them a quality of life. Therefore, pride crept in pretty fast in this philosophy where if I had more than somebody else, then I must be doing pretty good and they must not be doing good at all. There was a system of personal independence, but also they, nature was their God. They were pantheonistic in their thinking, believing that God was everywhere in everything. Contrasting this were the Stoics. Stoics were... Sorry, that was the Stoics... The Epicureans were contrasting their philosophy with theirs are grounded in experience, not reason. If, if it tasted good, if it felt good, if it was just something that seemed natural to do, then it was okay to do. Therefore, they were almost atheistic in their belief because if they couldn't taste, if they couldn't sense, if they couldn't feel God, then he must not exist. Contrasting these, or it was with these two contrasting philosophies in comparison to each other, but also with the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that Paul found himself debating on those three points of tangents. And Luke reports to us some of the responses that Paul had from his interaction. He was called a babbler, wished to, what does this babbler wish to say? Verse 18. Really, it was a slam, it was a put down, it was a sham. 
In the Greek, that babbler wish to save term is like is referring to one picking up seeds. In this context, what they're saying, that Paul, he's picked up some information he wants to share. He wants to share it like a parrot. You ever gone to a pet store and played with a parrot? Oh, you want a cracker? Oh, you want a cracker? They're saying that's what Paul's doing here. That he's parroting around the information, but he doesn't understand it. Only we, the smart ones, can understand it. Theologian F.F. Bruce said this of this account. Really, they were referring to Paul as a retailer of secondhand scraps of philosophy. Because, of course, in Athens, these philosophers were the ones who were smart. Others said he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Some thought Paul was not speaking lies, but he's speaking about two new gods that they could add to their collection since they mentioned about the resurrection about Jesus Christ. But we do know, as we go on in our narrative, that Paul must have hold his own against these philosophers. Since in verse 19, Paul was taken to a place called the area Apagus, known in the King James and Mars Hill, which was their sort of official court. See, just because the Roman Empire controlled Greece and controlled Athens, Athens was left as like sort of city-states with their own sort of independence. And it was here on Mars Hill that matters of religion and morals were decided. In other words, Paul and the gospel message he was proclaiming were sort of on trial here at their place of reckoning. Before we move on, I love the editorial comment that the narrator Luke puts in in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing, nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, Luke's making a note the Apostle Paul is kind of wasting his time here because these people are not interested in the truth. They just love talking and sounding smart. Or as Paul would say to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, they're liking their ears to get scratched because they had itching ears to hear the latest tidbit of so-called knowledge. They weren't interested in knowing the truth or discerning what was truth or not. So as we move on, put yourself in Paul's shoes. If you're Paul and you've been taken away on Mars Hill, what would you say for yourself at this point in time? Knowing that These philosophers are very educated. Knowing that these philosophers were kind of dead set in their ways. Knowing that these philosophers and the group that gathered at Mars Hill were very lost, apart from the gospel. Well, we see in verse 22 to 31 that Paul does what he typically does in this situation. That even in the face of great pressure, even with the potential great harm for, to himself, remember what happened in his last couple of visits in towns? He got kicked out. There's a ruckus raised up. Nevertheless, Paul sees an opportunity again to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul preaches to those who are gathered there on Mars Hill preaches because he knows that without the hearing this gospel and responding to it, these people are lost. But Paul preaches not in a fashion that we have seen him preach before. 
And he does so because he recognizes these people from Athens, those who reside there, are unlike any of the other places where he visited before. So here at Mars Hill, he keeps the central message of what God has done through Jesus Christ the same, but he changes his method. He changes his way of communicating because he understands the audience that he's talking to. I hope we're aware of that in our day age as well. That we need to adopt our methods to the times that we're living in, to the culture that we're trying to reach. Not change our message, but if we're trying to reach people with outdated methods, they're not going to understand. I've heard numerous English professors and scholars talking over the last couple of years about how they believe they we're watching English language changing in our midst because of these things. Because when you text the letter, when you want to say, are you there, you say, are, not A-R-E. When you say, you know, be okay, you put B. Scholars are su- suggesting that in a hundred years, when we want to say R, it's going to be R. When we want to say B, it's going to be B, because our language is changing. Just like our language has changed in the past. We don't walk around saying, whenceforth are you, do we? Have the way we share the gospel in our midst in 2017 has it changed with the times? Or are we trying to share the gospel based on 1960s or 1970s ideas of how we communicate with our culture? Do we even understand the culture we're trying to reach anymore? See, Paul was an educated rabbi. He understood, and we'll see, understood the Greek culture. And so he knew he had to attack them, talk to them on a different way than he talked to the people of Thessalonica and Berea. And so we see him doing that here. He starts, he preaches a four-part sermon that tells us here is that God is the creator, God is ruler, God is savior, and that God is judge. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Aeropagus, men of Ath- said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples, but made by man, nor he is served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind, life and breath and everything. As Paul begins his sermon, he launches an introduction like we're taught at Bible school to grab the reader's attention because he launches his sermon by attacking the greatest fear in that city. Remember, Athens is a city full of worship to gods. They have a god for everything in Athens. Imagine you're in that mindset. You worship a multitude of gods what would be your number one fear? What would happen if you forgot a God? And the God you forgot really mattered. <laughs> Shucks, I missed that one. So they erected a temple 
solely dedicated to the unknown God. Remember, they're not stupid. They're smart. So we'll cover our bases. We'll have this temple to the unknown God just in case at the end of our days, if it really mattered, we forgot about God. We got our ace in the hole. We got a temple for the unknown God. Paul attacks that fear right off the bat. He uses it as an end to these people saying that the God who they worship as being unknown is in fact the one and only true God. Therefore, he's the one that really matters. And why does God, or why does Paul proclaim that this God really matters? Well, Paul says that he is the God who made the world. And everything in the world, verse 24, that he is Lord then of heaven and earth. This God, therefore, is not confined in a temple or altar. He's totally self-sufficient. He's not sustained by human provision. He's not created by anybody human. And Paul, after declaring that this unknown God is the one and true God, concludes his opening by saying, it is then this God that's given life to all. Since again, if he is God over all, since he's God not contained by any temple or altar, then it's not man who's given God to life, it's God who's given life to man. That the creator has created and if the creator, if God is the creator over creation, then Paul moves into a second point that then God is ruler. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. God created what he created through one man, through Adam. Through Adam came many nations, and many nations were created. So they would seek God. Seek the true God. And they, as Paul says, they seek him because he's not hard to find. In verse 27, later in Paul's life, he'd write the book of Romans in his opening chapter, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The lost are without excuse. God has made it very easy for himself to be seen in this world. The trouble is, sometimes when we look, we don't see him. He is so obvious, we don't see him. You ever lost something that's been so obvious to found once you found it? Any of you with glasses ever been looking for your glasses and then find out where they should be, right on your nose? God is everywhere in creation if we look. From the sunrise to the sunset, through the good times and through the bad times, through life and even death. Come to the baptism this afternoon. It's through a death is how that couple receives salvation. Trouble is, we think it's more complicated than that. But God has made it easy. As Paul refers here in verse 27 in Romans chapter 1, 
So therefore, Paul says, since this creator is not hard to find, to get his point across, Paul again here draws on his knowledge of who he's trying to reach. He draws upon the Greek culture, one of their own poets, to reinforce this creator relationship, or creator or created relationship. In verse 27, 28, Paul says, In him we live and move and have our being, as some, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Therefore, if we are his offspring, even if you believe it or not, it means then that the creator has created, therefore the creator is the ruler. We serve him. He does not serve us. That God is not one of our possessions. He's not like gold or silver or stone, as Paul mentions in verse 29. God is not a God that we can put him in the pocket and do what we want. Our careers, our youth, our job, our money, our hockey. And then when, when our hockey team loses, when we lose our career, when we get old, when we lose our money, we come back and, oh God, help me. God is on His throne. He is ruler. He is overall. He is creator. He is ruler. We are to follow His ways. We are to walk the way that He wants us to walk. As He created us, He tells us how we shall to live. So Paul, from saying that God is creator, that He is ruler, we see in verse 30, as Paul moves on, he understands how lost these people truly are. Which is why he now calls these people to repent. To turn away from their lostness, to turn away from their philosophies, to turn away from their false gods, and turn back towards the one and true God. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, Paul says. This man was brave. You're in Mars Hill, where all the scholars of Athens, all the people who believed in the deep philosophies were there. The ones who were smart and the ones who thought they were smart. And that opening statement of that sentence, he fires a barrage right at their thinking, right at their historical significance of their philosophies. He really tries to knock out the crutch that they've been holding themselves up on. Saying that the whole culture, their whole philosophy, this whole idea of washed gods were times of ignorance. They're useless. They were excuses. Because with their long history of being smart, with their long history of being intelligent, with their long history of philosophy, with their long history of the many gods that they collected, they still failed to find the true God. Any of us like that this morning? We think we're smart. We think we're successful. We believe in what we believe, even though we don't really have a basis for it. You know, we're, we're, we're really great because we're from a great culture. We're from this country of Canada. We have an idea of God, or we have an idea of Jesus, and so forth. How many of us are going to end up one day finding out that what we believed in was ignorance? Because we missed the most important thing. That we have missed God. 
the creator God, the God of the universe, the God who describes himself to be God of the Bible. Let's not be like these Greeks. Let's not be like those who gathered on Mars Hill. We're so blinded by the stuff that they thought they had that they missed what was really important. And they missed the Savior that God had given them in and through Jesus Christ. Also, may we rejoice, may we have hope, since this one true God doesn't play games. He's not a God who says, find me, find me, find me, that makes it really hard for Him to be found. He made it so crystal clear how to be found, that's why He gave this world His Son, Jesus Christ, because the world hung Him on the cross, just like Moses hung the serpent on the cross, that whoever looks upon the cross, whoever looks upon the Son, shall be saved. That's how simple the God of the universe has made it. This is why Paul says what he does in verse 30. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Turn away from the falseness. Turn away and to embrace the true God. To really believe in Jesus as being the Savior of the world. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. 1 Timothy 2.4 Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Belief and repentance is hardly something you hear in the same sentence nowadays. Belief is mentioned. Oh, believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Just believe. Repentance is not a politically correct word in our society and unfortunately in our churches today. Repentance is almost never mentioned when somebody wants to come to God that they have to turn away from the life that they had as a pagan and turn towards God. I'll submit to you, and I'll be honest, that how many people have come to faith believing that belief was enough, never repented, and therefore in the end is going to find out something different? See, in our day and age, we have bought into two concepts. We've fallen off the road, so to speak, because we don't like the repentance, or we... Or we zero in on repentance and forget about belief or forget about mercy. One of those ditches that we fall into is the idea is that belief. Oh, just come to Jesus. And then it works out in really perverse ways. It's an old illustration, but we see it repeated over time. In the 1980s, there was a baseball player for the LA Dodgers, Steve Garvey. He had arms on the size of my thighs. And he was a great player. Near the end of his career, he was winding down. He was divorcing his first wife, engaged to another woman who was pregnant. But he also had two mistresses that were pregnant as well. And he remember standing up. And back in the 80s, this was a big deal. And he had a press conference. And he stood up and says, I'm going to do the Christian thing. Well, the Christian thing would have been nine months previous, called absence. But the Christian thing for him was going to be able to support all these kids is that we fall in this idea that belief in Jesus doesn't mean I change anything really, it just means I get my ticket to heaven. 
Or we fall in the other extreme, which I'm seeing more and more and more out of, is a type of universalism, if not full-fledged universalism. That the church believes, really, that everybody will be saved because... No, because? Because we don't witness anymore. Therefore, if everybody's going to be saved, I don't have to witness. Now, that's arguments thrown out the corner, is then why did God send His Son, Jesus? If it cost God everything to save people who would come, why, did he, why would he send his son if it's already going to be taken care of? It's true that people, Jesus, God through Jesus calls people to believe and repent. It's true that Jesus died for all. Jesus died for all. That's why that's... Anybody have problems with that lyrics in that song? I did the first time around, then I thought about it. God doesn't want heaven empty. He doesn't want heaven empty. Jesus does not want heaven empty. But because of evil, not all will repent. Not all will come with faith. Paul understands this. Which is why he endeavored to share the gospel in Athens to start with. Why he preaches on Mars Hill. And now why, in verse 30, Paul calls these people to repent. Because if they don't repent and come back to God, come back to God they'll be lost. Because there's a day of judgment coming. Verse 31. Makes sense through the flow of his sermon that God is creator, he is ruler, he is savior. Then one of the natural outcomes of that then, then there will be a time of judgment. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. From that verse, who's the man that's going to judge? Who's been raised from the dead? Jesus. They know who he's talking about. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a huge issue, issue in the early church because it, the resurrection, they understood, was a central part of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it was a major persuader of the early church Jews to win people to Christ. Because if somebody came back from the dead, that is major news. But more importantly, in the theological aspect, the resurrection places Jesus at God's right hand, showing that Jesus has authority to give salvation, but also to be the judge. So Paul ends his sermon with a warning, because he wanted these people to come to faith. To get the point across to what he's been saying, that if they trusted God that day, that they would be saved. Likewise, if they rejected God that day, then tomorrow they may be judged. It's a similar reality that we all face today, and everyone faces today. Either we believe in Jesus today, or risk judgment tomorrow. Have you accepted Jesus? Or are you risking being judged tomorrow? running out of time in verse 32 to me this, these verse 30, 32 to 34 is proof that scripture is real 
It's proof that these are God's word to us. Is one of the proofs. I shouldn't say the only proof. Because if I'm making it up, and if I'm Luke right now, I am not going to write the results that I have been given. That I wrote down. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, Will we hear you again about this? So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and the Aeropagite, and a woman, beautiful name, Damaris, and others with them. The results are mixed. If I'm making this up, I'm going to say that everyone on that hill that day repented and believed in Jesus. But Luke is being honest. He's saying that some mocked. Some mocked Paul. They didn't believe that someone could be raised from the dead. Others wanted to hear more information from Paul. And the third, some believed. Really, the results that Luke describes here are the same results we see if we continue to witness. There's only three responses to the gospel. It's going to be rejected. And yes, we might be mocked. It's going to draw people to want more questions and answers. Or it's going to cause people to believe. That is the three responses that anybody can give to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul had this on Mars Hill. It shouldn't surprise us if we get those responses. Now the thing is, we'll never get any response unless we don't go and be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we never endeavor to spread Jesus in our world, be it while we're on vacation, yes, but be it while we're not on vacation as well. Is our heart stirred as Paul's heart was stirred in Athens over where Canada is today? There's only one way to transform Canada, and it's not Facebook, it's not through political action, it's not through a whole bunch of things that are great with social justice. The only way to transform Canada today is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way that gospel has been given to this world to be delivered to this world is through God's witnesses that we've been called as believers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Paul's example. Spirit of God, would you break our hearts where it needs to be broken, how your heart is broken over our country. And may that brokenness propel us, Lord, to go share the good news, the glorious news of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.